It's the show where Hawaii's newsmakers come to talk and to take your questions live. From the nation's capital to Honolulu Hale, from the state legislature to the fifth floor, we bring the experts to you and ask them what you want to know. Spotlight Hawaii with Yanji Denise and Ryan Palaisuji on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long's Drugs. Well, aloha. Thanks so much for being here on this rainy Wednesday. I'm Yanji Denise. Ryan Kalei Suji is off today. He will be back on Friday. But we do bring the experts to you, as our uh, intro there says. And today we have the best of the best. Dr. Tim Brown is joining us. He is an infectious disease expert from the East-West Center and has some really important data to share with us, looking at the numbers statewide and what's happening with COVID infections across the state. Let's welcome him now. Dr. Brown, thanks for being here. Good morning, Angie. Great to be here. So, you know, uh, President Joe Biden declared the emergency phase of the coronavirus over on May 11th. Uh, now, you know, we continue on and uh, we still have COVID in our community, but it does feel like uh, people are taking it a lot less seriously. What are, What is your read about where we are when it comes to the coronavirus? Okay, I originally came on with a different message that I'm going to send right now. Uh, I was really prepared to talk about endemicity and the fact that we seem to be fairly stable in the state. But this morning's numbers that dropped at 9 a.m. are rather concerning. Can you bring up the first slide? Uh, what we saw in this morning's numbers was the case numbers, which had been comparatively low. You'll see how in the kind of March to, or February to March timeframe, they're relatively flat here. All of a sudden, in this morning's numbers, they rapidly shot up. Uh, the weekly number doubled from about 500-something last week to over 1,200 uh, this, this week. And so something is definitely going on with the epidemic right now. We're seeing a significant increase. Next slide. Now, <clears throat> you might attribute that to more testing, but the reality is that when we actually look at the daily test, and this is, again, the testing done through today on Oahu, uh, the tests are still declining. And that's part of what's interesting here. Cases are going up, but tests are declining. So that's an indication that, you know, the case increase is perhaps even steeper than what we think it is. Next slide. <clears throat> now, the other indicators that we also have are things like test positivity. That is the percent of tests that come in positive. And I've extracted out the data for Oahu, where we have the the largest set of information and the greatest numbers so that it's easier to see trends and so on. But you can see here, literally in the last week or so, we have seen the positivity double from little over 4% last week, it's close to 10% this week. And this trend has been replicated on Hawaii and on the Big Island. They, they're also seeing positivity rates up around 11, 12% right now. So something seems to have changed in the last couple of weeks here in Hawaii. And next slide. And it's actually showing up in all of the data sources that we have. So this, for example, is the wastewater from a company called BioBot who actually get their results out faster than the Department of Health does. So they're a good spot to look. Their last results were as of March 22nd. And you can see <clears throat> for a while in the last few weeks, 
uh, if you look at the February, March timeframe here, our positivity was down to about the same levels it was at over Thanksgiving. So you see that Thanksgiving dip, and then after Thanksgiving, it started to rise, it rose through Christmas, then again, it started to fall through January. Well, we were flat for the last two or three weeks, but now we're starting to rise again. So this is a third indicator, along with positivity in cases, that something is on the move with COVID here in Hawaii. And the next slide. And finally, hospitalizations. Uh, this comes from the Healthcare Association of Hawaii. In the last week or so, again, we're seeing the number of hospitalizations have started to rise again. Now, given that these rapid rises in cases and so on are relatively recent, I would not expect the hospitalizations to have risen as substantially as they're likely to in the next few days. In fact, these, these case trends hold up. So there are some real concerns here as to exactly what's happening now. Uh, next slide. The variant report from the state also dropped yesterday. And this actually looks at data through mid-March through March 11th. And no surprises here. Basically, we're seeing XBB15 is now up to almost 80% of the sequenced uh, samples here in Hawaii. Uh, that is the variant that now is very dominant in the United States. It's over 90% of all cases in the U.S. And, you know, I'm not seeing any radical change here over what's been going on for the last three or four weeks that would explain this very sudden rise that we're seeing. So I'm, you know, I'm a bit of a loss right now, frankly, to explain this rise. And I think we're just going to have to wait and see how this rides out over the next two or three weeks. Uh, but it is concerning because it's a very rapid increase. Now, I'm also getting anecdotal reports from a, a friend of mine who runs an urgent care clinic who's telling me that they are also seeing uptick in the number of patients coming in for COVID care now. <clears throat> so it does appear that something is happening in the community. We don't know what right now, but we have to watch it closely, I think, over the next couple of weeks. So as this, you know, is in our community and you see that, I mean, those numbers doubling in a week while the test levels are going down, one thing that's important to remember is that this data, of course, does not include all those home tests, correct? Exactly. It doesn't include the home test, and it doesn't include the large number of people who don't even bother to test now when they get respiratory illness. Mm -hmm. uh, I, so, so, you know, this is definitely an underestimate of what's happening. That 10%, that doubling of positivity in the last week is what really has me concerned, because that, you know, that's probably one of our best indicators right now is the number of tests tends to decline. Uh, there's a comment here from Ingrid, and we, of course, love to bring in our audience. Could the rise be spring break travelers into the state or perhaps people like me who, you know, went to California? I went to Disneyland with my kids for the first time since the pandemic, uh, had a wonderful time and then came back. I will say on a full flight, I, I think our family was one of the very few that were masked and were still masking. And, and I felt sort of silly, to be honest, sitting there and insisting that my kids keep a mask on. You know, what's your read? Could this be spring break? And, and also, you know, to the masking question, Linda's saying, OMG, need to mask up for MM, which I'm assuming she means Mary Monarch activities. That is a big gathering that happens mm -hmm. in our state around right. this time of year. I don't, I, I would be a little reluctant to attribute it to a large number of travelers coming in. I mean, we have travelers coming into the state constantly. Uh, and if anything, the trends on the mainland right now, where most of our uh, visitors tend to come from, are downward at this point. Positivity trends are downward. Hospitalizations are downward. 
So things on the mainland are going the opposite direction right now. Although I did notice, I was looking at the New York Times website this morning, where they put the positivity rate up. And there is a slight upward tick over the last three days in positivity in the U.S. as a whole. So maybe that's the start of something going on. I don't know. But again, I'd, I'd be reluctant to attribute that largely to visitors. Now, the other thing that's just been occurring to me, from a Hawaii standpoint, we've had an awfully long spell of pretty bad weather for a period of time here. We've had several weeks of on and off rain, which may be keeping people indoors more than they might otherwise tend to do. So that could have something to do with it. Or again, yeah, I mean, it, it could be related to, you know, students were off for spring break a couple of weeks ago at Manoa. So, you know, maybe they were holding spring bake parties or something like this. But again, I wouldn't expect that to be a major contributor to this, is, which is clearly, you know, a much more widespread increase in cases. So I'm really at a loss to explain it right now. And I think we just have to wait to see what plays out over the next couple of weeks. And hopefully it it levels off fairly quickly. Because right now we're, you know, effectively back pretty much to where we were around Christmas time, where mm -hmm. things were also significantly higher. Now, at the start of your remarks, you did say that uh, that the epidemic is endemic, and that's what you wanted to talk about, or you thought that we were going to focus on today. I do want to ask you about that. I think it's an important point. Um, and there was this feeling early on that once it was endemic, it was not something that we really needed to worry about. Tell us about what that means when we say it's endemic and, and how concerning that is. Okay, let's let's go to the next slide for that. Okay, uh, that's this one? Yeah. Okay, what I did here was the green is the cases that I showed you on the first slide with this very rapid uptick in the, the last week or so. Uh, the red is what our cases would have looked like if the testing had not been declining over time. Okay, and so you can see that Back in October or so on the left-hand side of this slide, we were pretty much at a stable level of about 110 to 120 cases per day. Then when Thanksgiving and Christmas came, we saw an uptick. It went up at Thanksgiving, then it came down a little bit. Then again, as the Christmas season started, it rose again over Christmas and New Year's. And then through January, we were coming down pretty well. And then again, toward the end of January, we stabilized into a level of about between 80 and 100 cases per day before this very rapid increase that's happened in the last week or so. Uh, so let's go to the next slide. Now, what I was prepared to say before the, this morning's numbers came out was that probably what this meant is that we had reached an endemic level, okay? Endemic, despite what the media tends to tell you, does not mean harmless, okay? What endemic means to an epidemiologist is that the virus is well-established in a population. In other words, it's there, it's not going away. And so in Hawaii, I would say prior to Thanksgiving and Christmas, when we know there's a lot more risk, a lot more people are going out and getting together, so that explains those increases. We had really been at a pretty stable level through October and November, up until Thanksgiving. And then we got back to a pretty stable level for most of February and March until the last week or so. And that is really what endemic looks like. Endemic means that the epidemic is pretty much at a flat level. Now, what the term endemic does not tell you is two things. Number one, it doesn't tell you the level at which the virus is going to be endemic. 
and it doesn't tell you anything about the health impacts of that virus within the community. So as an example, let's let's consider COVID. The level at which it becomes endemic, the level at which it stabilizes, is going to depend on two things. First, how infectious it is. Okay, and second, how many people are still in the population who can be infected? What we epidemiologists call susceptibles. Okay, there are people who they are people who are susceptible to infection. Now the problem with COVID is that like other coronaviruses that cause the common cold, protections tend to wane over time. So your immunity goes away over some period of time. And that period of time, depending on whether you get vaccine-induced immunity or infection-induced immunity, basically can be anywhere from three to 10 months, something of that sort is basically what we've tended to observe. And that's similar to the other coronaviruses. And that's why, you know, you can get infected with other colds typically about once a year, once every other year, uh, because you, you lose that immunity over time. Well, that happens with COVID as well. And we know, for example, with the vaccines that you get protection right after you're vaccinated for three to four months against infection. But then after that, your protection against infection drops pretty quick. And by six months out from your booster, you're not really getting much protection from infection. You still have about 60, 70 percent protection against severe illness and death. But because your immunity is waning and the same thing happens if you get an infection and recover, okay, you get some temporary immunity again, starting to wear off after about 10 months or so, and then you can be reinfected. And we see, you know, substantial number of reinfections, especially with Omicron because it's so contagious. And so because that you lose that immunity over time, that takes you out of the recovered pool and it puts you back into the susceptible pool you're able to get infected again. So the level at which it settles in is gonna depend on how infectious it is and how quickly that immunity is waning. And what we're finding with COVID, that that endemic level is fairly high. How what high? We, like well, what, what we see here in Hawaii, you know, somewhere on the order of probably about a hundred cases. That's, that I would say is the endemic level. And that's what we observe. Like you say, there are people who don't test. There are people who use home tests. Those aren't captured in the system. So we could easily be looking at 500 to 1,000 cases per day. Take that over a week. You know, we're talking about seven or 8,000 people becoming infected. That's a fairly high level of endemicity. Now, the other thing that it doesn't tell us is how much harm does it do? Malaria is an endemic disease. In most of Africa, okay, mosquito-borne, but it's still endemic, and it disproportionately affects children as opposed to adults. So what we see in Africa, for example, with malaria infections, is three quarters of the infections or three quarters of the deaths with malaria occur among children. And that means in Africa, about 1,500 children die of malaria every day. Hmm. So. Malaria affects the younger part of our population. COVID, on the other hand, and this is very clear right now, disproportionately affects the older part of our population and the people who are immunocompromised or have underlying conditions like diabetes, heart conditions, high blood pressure, things of those sort that put them at elevated risk of severe COVID. Okay, so what we're finding now 
is we're at a fairly high endemic level. There's a lot of virus circulating in the community. And if you don't believe that, just look around your circle of friends and stuff. I mean, I've got two good friends who avoided COVID for three years. They're down with COVID right now. They're very cautious. They're very careful. But there's just a lot of COVID out there in the community. So we settle in at a high level. And then it doesn't affect young people or the younger part of the population so much. Those under 50 generally do get, you know, a mild to sometimes quite severe illness. It's not always mild. People get hit. Some people get hit, have almost sniffles and nothing more. Other people get hit and they're really laid up for a couple of weeks. Okay, so the impacts on different people vary substantially. But for the older population, we're still seeing people dying every week of COVID. If you look into those death numbers here, the vast majority of them are people age 60 and above. And in the U.S. as a whole, something like 90% of all COVID deaths in the last year were basically in the 65-plus population. So what it means is now we've got something that's circulating at a high level in the community. It doesn't do much harm to the younger people, but it can do serious harm to older people. The hospitalization rates can be quite high for older people sometimes. So they have to take different precautions than the younger people have to take when we're living with this high level of COVID. And on that uh, caution, the precautionary point, uh, I want to bring in two comments here. Uh, Dina just saying, I was feeling pretty safe as an immunocompromised person. I guess maybe I should not feel that way. Uh, Related there, can you ask if vulnerable people should reboot at the six-month point or wait until the next vaccination in the fall? This is a really interesting question. I actually just went in for my annual checkup uh, and I asked my doctor, do I need a COVID shot? It's been more than six months. She said, well, you have you know, to the, you have the bivalent vaccine. Right. So just wait until whatever is, is coming next. So it, it is very confusing because we were so, I mean, I can't even, I had to go look at my vaccination card to try to remember when I'd even gotten that shot. Well, I think that that's the problem here in the United States. In Canada, uh, they now will give a boost to a second boost of the bivalent anybody who is 65 or older or has immunocompromised or other underlying conditions. All of those people are eligible for a six-month reboost in Canada. In the UK, they, I think, are using a 75-year-old cutoff. But again, immunocompromised are also eligible for a reboost at this point. Here in the US, they're talking about it, which we're real good at. We do an awful lot of talking and not a whole lot of decision-making. And so the FBA did have a meeting a couple of weeks ago where they were discussing this. There are evidently still a lot of back-channel, back-room sort of discussions going on between CDC and FDA as to whether or not they will approve a six-month boost for those who are immunocompromised or those who are older. My personal opinion is I think we should be doing it. I think the evidence on waning of protection from the boosters is very clear. Uh, There was another paper from Qatar that just came out looking at people who were at higher risk and did find that most of the protective effect was gone by six months. So, in fact, you could make, I think, a pretty good strong strong argument from the data that a reboost for those who want it, not mandating it, Mm -hmm. but recommending it. And for those of us who would want it, and I would be one of those when I reach the six-month point, I would want to get reboosted. Uh, Hopefully, we will see that recommendation in the next few weeks. But... Again, the U.S. is very slow at coming to these things. Like I say, Canada and the U.K. have already made that choice. 
Now, you mentioned that, you know, people who are a little bit younger tend not to do as poorly with this. But one of the things that we don't really understand, at least from my understanding, having spoken to a number of long COVID experts on this program, um, is who gets long COVID, why they get long COVID, how long it will last. You know, uh, we spoke to Dr. Dominic Chow a while back from the long COVID clinic over at Queens. He's describing people who basically have to go on disability uh, because they cannot function. Uh, we had Dr. Carl Bonham on here who works over at UHero. He's not a medical doctor. He is uh, an economist, but he is attributing much of the worker shortage, he said, to people who are experiencing long COVID and perhaps can't take that second job back. Um, they just don't have the stamina to enter the workforce in the same way. What are your thoughts on long COVID at this point? I think, you know, the first thing that I want to emphasize People keep hearing this message parroted from our politicians, by many in our media who, frankly, I think are, you know, trying to downplay the, the pandemic at this point. And it still is a pandemic. There's still COVID everywhere, as we've seen at fairly high levels, even in our local community. Uh, and they tell you COVID's nothing to worry about. It's just a flu. It's going to pass. No, COVID is a totally different animal. It's a coronavirus that is novel. It's human race has only been exposed to it for three years now. And we still have not built up the kind of protection that we have against the common colds that have been circulating for the last several hundred years. Okay, we don't have protections. Uh, we don't, we've been exposed to those so many times that we've got very solid protection. We don't have that with COVID yet. It's also a disease that affects multiple organ systems. It doesn't just affect the lungs. Okay? It affects the linings of the blood vessels. And that leads to all kinds of problems. It means there's a lot of clotting and microclotting that is associated with COVID quite often, especially in the early days when we had the nastier variants. It's still there to some extent with Omicron, but to a lesser extent. Uh, it causes immune dysfunction. Okay, some people come out, and one of the explanations, possible explanations for long COVID, is autoimmune disorders coming out of a COVID infection. It does not have to be a serious COVID infection. Some people with very mild COVID infections get long COVID. Some people with serious COVID infections get long COVID at a higher rate. Although distinguishing between long COVID and just damage that was done to their system when they were had a more severe infection is rather difficult at this point, but that will also contribute to long COVID. So it really can affect anybody. It affects young people, it affects older people, probably affects older people more. And it really affects all the organ systems in the body. So go to the next slide. Okay, this shows you, this is a review paper that just came out about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, that shows you all the organ systems that long COVID affects and all the different impacts that it can have. So you see the heart, the lungs, the pancreas, the immune system, blood vessels, gastrointestinal tract, neurological system, that's brain fog, uh, ringing in the ears that may just never go away, problems with sleep and memory loss, I mean, fatigue. All of these are issues that show up both with COVID, but also you know, are particularly pronounced in cases of long COVID. Now, what we find with long COVID is that for many people, it passes after three or four months. But there's another group of probably between five and 10% of people where a year out, they're still experiencing sub-significant COVID symptoms. And many of those are at the level that they basically make it difficult for them to work. I mean, the Brookings Institute 
has estimated that currently between two and four million U.S. workers are out of the labor force because of the impacts of long COVID. So even if it only ends up affecting, you know, five to 10% of the population long-term, even those short-term effects over three or four months, I mean, in most of the studies where they've looked at three months, 30 to 40% of the people are still suffering some symptoms related to COVID infections. So, you know, COVID, because it affects so many organ systems, takes a long time for the body to deal with. And so it is something that you really don't want to get. Now, uh, I think Dean Kansas cut off the slide. I think, you know, the bad news on it right now is we don't really have much in the way of treatments for long COVID. At this point, really, we're primarily doing symptomatic treatment because we don't have it. The other bad news with long COVID is that most of the standard medical tests that we run for people will not pick up long COVID. Okay, So in fact, we get a lot of patients getting the same sort of pushback from medical care providers that people with chronic fatigue syndrome got. Oh, it's all in your mind. In fact, there was, there was a paper published just about a month ago, basically, of a, a group of psychiatrists who were saying, no, no, so much of this is psychological. No. There are physiological bases for these. There are indicators that are not in the standard lab tests that can pick up long COVID. We see microclotting associated with it. We see people who have prolonged infection. The infection may have established itself within their body somewhere, and that's what's producing the long COVID symptoms. We have people who have autoimmune disorders induced by COVID. So there are multiple factors that are probably causing long COVID. And frankly, if you're like me and you value your brain, you're not somebody who really wants to take the crapshoot that, well, I can keep getting reinfected in COVID and not have to worry about anything. Because sooner or later, you may get one of those infections that does the kind of damage that leads to long COVID. And then you may be living with it much, much longer than you want to be. Well, I think that's an important point because, you know, just because you had COVID before and you were okay, doesn't mean that the next infection, I mean, what I hear you saying is it doesn't mean that the next infection won't bring on long COVID. Actually, I mean, there, there is some evidence that, you know, the, the people who got severe illness probably are more prone to long COVID. But yeah, that second and third infection may end up being more severe than your first one was. So we really don't know. Now, the good news on long COVID, which is limited, but there is some, is we do know three things right now that can help you to reduce your risk of long COVID. Number one, you know, get that phonograph record out, vaccines. Vaccines reduce your risk of long COVID. So get vaccinated. I don't care if you're a young person. Get vaccinated. The vaccine will reduce your risk of long COVID. The other thing that reduces is Paxlovid. So if you do get COVID, get a test and get on Paxlovid. That will reduce your risk of long COVID. And there's a new drug where a study just came out just two weeks ago, I think, in New England Journal. It's called Methformin. It's a drug that's been around forever, it's very inexpensive. But they found that it reduced the risk of long COVID about 42%. Now that's only one study and it needs to be replicated. If that turns out to be true, then using that combination of vaccines, plus Paxilovid, plus hopefully metformin, could probably go a long way toward reducing a lot of the long COVID going forward. Metformin is in the diabetes medication? Interesting. Okay. Yeah. We we only have so a few. It's readily available, you know, it's it's but it's it seems to work against long COVID. That is so interesting. Okay, we only have a few minutes left and I know we have three more slides that you wanted to get to. So could you walk us through this data? I believe the first one is looking at um the global situation and what can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, we were just going to look at, okay, where, what's the rest of the world looking like right now? I just wanted to show you Europe because it's kind of interesting. All these graphs look pretty similar, but this is what most of Europe, Europe looks like. They're going through these rebounding, but seemingly decreasing uh, levels of COVID infections. Okay, so you'll notice they start with high peaks and the peaks tend to decrease over time. Although toward the end of the year, which is on the right hand of the slide, they tend to go up again because again, the holidays, everybody's getting together. Uh, now, that is the common pattern that we're seeing throughout Europe at this point. Next slide. Uh, what's interesting about this is if you actually play with how we would expect COVID to move to endemicity, and this is a model produced by James Ward. Actually, it's an Excel spreadsheet model, so it's fairly easy. But it shows you what you expect. You'd expect actually to see slowly decreasing peaks until you settle into some equilibrium level, the blue line here. And from the data in the UK where they have a cross-sectional survey that they do of people, or they did until last week, they discontinued it last week, unfortunately, because it's an incredible data source. But they're finding it's settling in in the population somewhere between about 1.5 and 2% of people being infected at any point in time. So that is probably in the UK, that's the endemic level of COVID, somewhere around one and a half to 2% of everybody infected at some point. You know, on a, on a given day, there'll be say 2% of the people infected with COVID. That's a lot of COVID circulating in the community, which means as your infection wanes, as you your protections drop, you got a pretty good chance of getting reinfected again, unless you're cautious and keep up on your vaccines, wear your mask, careful, especially if you're in any of those higher risk categories. The final slide. Now, in terms of things we got to watch, the one, the primary one that people are most worried about right now is kind of an offspring of XBB15, XBB116. Uh, the reason we're worried about this one is it's growing fairly rapidly in India right now. Uh, India positivity on a nationwide basis is up to about one and a half percent. And you can see, you know, this is not the positivity, this is actually growth rate. But again, they were in a fairly flat period where they weren't seeing as much growth of COVID. Now it's starting to rise again. Uh, so we are watching that one. It has been detected in the United States. Actually, I think we have the second highest number of cases after India, but at a much, much lower proportion of our cases right now. I think it's only about two and a half percent of our cases now, but it is something we have to watch going forward. Uh, so we are keeping an eye on this one. I want to bring in one comment uh, before we let you go. Dr. Scott Miskovich, who I know is a colleague of yours, uh, says, Tim, thanks for your amazing work during the pandemic. Please highlight the importance for the over 60 population and at risk to start Paxlovid and do it as soon as diagnosed. It saves lives and prevents hospitalizations. You did talk about this, but I just want to, you know, you presented all this data and it, and it is very overwhelming and it feels like, oh my goodness, here we go again. Um, but there are tools and we really want to emphasize that there are, you know, there's Paxlovid, there's vaccinations, there's masking, there's distancing, there's there's all these things, correct? Yes. And, and the thing I want to, you know, Scott's quite correct to say, you know, let's stress Paxlovid. Uh, part of the problem we've got with Paxlovid is it's not being used in this country. A survey that was done middle of last year only found about 11% of people were getting Paxlovid when they should be getting. Uh, our supplies are badly underutilized. And part of the problem there is there are things in the way of people getting Paxlovid. First is that a lot of people don't know about it. Okay, They're not aware that if they're at higher risk, especially, they should be getting Paxlovid. And frankly, even if you're at moderate risk, you probably ought to just get Paxlovid. Like I say, it can help to reduce your long COVID. Uh, 
So that's the first thing. People don't know about it. There are doctors who are reluctant to prescribe it. That's a problem because it does have drug interactions, but a doctor should be able to figure out those drug interactions pretty easily. Most of the drugs can be temporarily stopped while you're on Paxlovid because it's only a five-day course. Okay, But it does do a lot for reducing the severity of the illness, helping you to clear COVID much more quickly. And so you know you really need it. Now, the third problem is testing. You have to get tested before you can get Paxlovid. And now that a lot of people are not testing anymore, they get respiratory symptoms, they just let it go. Well, no, especially if you're older or you're in a risk category, you should definitely be testing anytime you get respiratory symptoms. Use a home test kit. And if you test positive, then get to your doctor immediately and get them to give you Paxlovid, push on them. Sometimes you got to push on these people to make things happen. Well, push, uh, because especially if you're older, Paxlovid will great. It will reduce the risk of hospitalization by 80 percent, the risk of death by about the same percentage, especially in higher risk populations. So it is extremely valuable. You do not want to be one of those casualty counts that are put out by the Department of Health every week. And Paxlovid can go a long way toward preventing that. But you've got to know to get it and you've got to get a doctor who will give it to you. We are out of time and over time, but before I let you go, I just would love for you to give us a final thought. You know, I invited you on the program this morning because, uh, like I said, you know, I was on that plane to and from California and no one's wearing a mask. Um, It feels, you know, gatherings are back and it's wonderful. I, I, you know, I don't want to, you know, discount. My kids had a great spring break. We had a wonderful time. We got to create all these family memories. Events are back. Birthday parties are back. We are doing all the things all over again. Um, so it feels like, you know, sometimes I myself, even hosting this program, feel like, well, is, is COVID still serious? Is this still something I need to be concerned about? And the bottom line from our conversation today is it sounds like it is. I think it is. I mean, COVID is still out there. Like I said, it's at a fairly high level in our community. And like I say, you just have to look around at the number of people who are sick and still coughing away and so on. Uh, I wish people were being more cautious about it. I wish that people in the supermarkets and the stores who are coughing their lungs out were wearing masks. I will tell you, from my experience, a vast majority of them are not, which is doing a disservice to everybody around them, spreading those respiratory pathogens throughout the community. And so, yes, I think it is serious, especially if you're older or immunocompromised. It's still a serious risk that you should be avoiding. And so, you know, the older folks, I would really recommend mask up when you're in crowded settings and so on. And be cautious. Use test if you do test positive and get Paxlovid right away. If you haven't boosted, boost. Only 40% of the, those in the 65 and older category here in Hawaii have gotten boosted with the bivalent booster. The bivalent booster works better against the current Omicron variants than the previous boosters did. So there are good reasons to get the bivalent booster. So again, you know, yes, I think we still need to be taking COVID seriously. It still affects one part of our population very in very nasty ways. And we really want to avoid that. We want to get those deaths down. It's interesting, the FDA uh, committee, when it was looking at Paxlovid, pointed out that if we actually had good uptake of Paxlovid in this country, we could be reducing the number of deaths by 1,500 a week and the number of hospitalizations by 13,000. Just in terms of healthcare cost, that's a huge reduction in healthcare cost of 13,000 hospitalizations. So yeah, absolutely. Get your Paxlovid and use it. 
Okay, Dr. Tim Brown, it's always great to talk to you. Thank you so much for presenting all of that data today. We really appreciate uh, all the work you do for our community and all the information that you shared. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Angie. Well, great to talk to him as always. You know, I always learn so much when we speak to Dr. Brown. So if you missed any part of this program, he had a full slate of slides that he presented to us that really drill down into the data. Um, and it was interesting because the data that he had initially shared with me uh, just yesterday was different than the slides he presented this morning. There were uh, it, There's new data that came in just at nine o'clock this morning, and he was able to quickly turn it around and put it into graphics so that we could all easily digest it. Uh, we're seeing uh, you know, a, a very significant increase in just the last week. Not sure what that's attributed to. There, you know, there are different theories as to why that could be happening, but bottom line, there's quite a bit of COVID still in our community. And yes, while you may be able to fight that infection uh, in the short term, we don't know the consequences when it comes to long COVID and other maleffects of this virus. So always best, of course, not to contract it in the first place. He also talked about the importance of Paxlovid, uh, making sure that you have a pathway to get that should you contract the coronavirus uh, and the importance of home testing uh, or doing any kind of testing, if at all possible, if you start to notice symptoms, knowledge is power and empower yourself with finding out whether or not you are in fact positive so that you can protect yourself and those in the community, of course, that you love. Uh, again, we always appreciate having him on. Ryan is back on Friday and he'll be joining us for a conversation with UH President David Lassner. Uh, the U University of Hawaii president has a lot to talk about, of course, it is legislative session, and so UH is, of course, working on their, uh, you know, getting different asks to the lawmakers. Also, there has been some controversy around President Lassner himself and his leadership, some criticism uh, from lawmakers, and so also, we should say, some some pretty strong defense by other lawmakers. So we want to sort through all of that and get his take as to why this is happening and, and his response to those criticisms. We do hope you join us then. Also, we will be asking about the stadium, something that we know a lot of you are tracking. So join us right here at 1030 on Friday. Until then, take care and aloha. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long's Drugs.